0: He's back, people. We got we got Hermsmeyer. Uh The eagle has landed. He's back on the podcast. Uh, Josh Hermsmeyer, how are you, my friend?
1: Doing good, doing good. Uh, I'm glad to be here to talk post draft GM stuff. And uh, yeah, man, I, I love this pod. I listen all the time.
0: Well, we appreciate that. We I mean the royal we. Uh, I'm throwing in there because it's <laughs> just me back here uh, uh, doing uh, putting together the widgets here for for this pod and. We got to talk post-draft, okay? So you, I would say, we are probably in agreement like 90% of the time. We have maybe 10% disagreement. We had a little bit of a disagreement earlier this year when I was a bit more optimistic, you might say, uh, in what would happen forward-looking with new, younger uh, GMs coming into the league, and maybe they're starting to get a critical mass of that, that it would become not table stakes, but getting close to table stakes to at least follow certain principles going forward. Now, the relative edge would be you have to kind of keep up with the crowd versus just totally eschewing that sort of thinking and just going by the results. Now, I would say I probably got a little bit more negative as I've seen things going on in the offseason. season. A lot of ways that things were being, were being framed. The draft, I think, was good and bad in some of that, as far as it's concerned. So I, I need to check in with you. Take your temperature now, since I'm maybe around the same place as I was before. What is, what is your thought on what you're seeing now in the NFL? Hopeful, optimistic, pessimistic? Eh, you know, what, what's going on with you?
1: So I only think there's one sharp GM in the league. And one of 32. I'm, one of 32. And I, that's the one that's, that lives in Philly. Um, and, and, and even then I think that there's plenty of room for, for Howie to be a little less smug, a little less confident and it'd be better, but he is far and away the one that I, if you were going to say you have to bet on a GM doing something smart, or at least the bog standard table stakes level you mentioned, it would be Howie. um, the rest are all pretty much tied for me for, for last. So
0: that's, that's similar to what, to what you had said last time. Now, do you think and this is something that I've thought about when I was going through and trying to grade in a quantitative manner, but then also with some qualitative subjective stuff in there, what happened during the draft that isn't a function of the fact, at least in my opinion, it's like not messing up is almost job one. It's like the Hippocratic Oath sort of thing. Do no harm is almost job one for GM. So it's a little bit harder to point out definitively something sharp that someone has done as opposed to something poor or something kind of a little bit on more of the donkey side. If we have that divide sharp versus donkey side for these different GMs. And then because you're just constantly seeing these different uh, poor value moves, you start to get this impression that everyone is bad, but the reality is it's just more difficult to pinpoint them doing the right thing because we think it's, it's kind of easy and kind of what you should be able to do without any problems.
1: Well, I mean, I think there's a a fairly simple heuristic and that's that we don't need to really get into the whys, but we can just look at what they actually do or don't do. And most do bad things and don't do sharp things. And so, and I'm not talking about things that are even like small edges or I'm I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not making too fine a point about these things. I'm saying the base rate stuff, positional value stuff, not passing over QBs when you definitely have a need. I mean, these are these are just simple things that I think that anytime you make excuses for GMs who are not doing these very simple things, um, you're doing a disservice to the entire idea of what we're trying to make an argument for, which is use the best evidence you can to make the best decisions possible. And so I think in that vein, uh, saying that's the heuristic for understanding who's sharp and who's not. And that's the way I, I grade them. Um, it's also interesting to try and understand why, right? Because, I mean, once you get to the structural level of this thing, you can maybe see why things keep happening. And I think one of the best ways, like my Rosetta Stone right now, for how to understand GMs and how they how they, how they make the decisions they make, why they make the decisions they make, and how they behave, um, is this article in The Athletic recently by Randy Muller, Mueller, Mueller. Um, he's a former GM um, and he's currently, I believe, the player personnel, uh, director of player personnel for the XFLC Dragons. But he he writes this article and he basically goes through what he would have done in the draft, or at least talks about his experience being a GM and, and, and the way he made decisions and what he would have done in certain instances. And I just I want to go through some of his points and I want to use them as a, as a springboard to kind of talk about why I believe this really is the best way to understand how GMs do their job, um, or at least the current crop.
0: Okay, we, we can get it to you. I believe, I believe it's Mueller, but I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just Mueller. going off of our former uh, FBI director. Um, and he but hosts- I even, I know, even
1: people called them Mueller too. So Is anyway. it
0: Mueller? Maybe it is Mueller, actually. So, <laughs> saying? I'm sorry, not, not politically connected here, buddy. Um, but I know that he- writes periodically for The Athletic, and I believe he co-hosts a show with Mike Sando, where they, 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 they feed it into The Athletic feed, where it's the, the football GM, I think they call it, being a former player personnel guy. But this is the guy that we're talking about here, and he wrote an article after the draft talking about a few different things. So go ahead. I think there was a lot revealing within that article as not only to what his thinking may be, but a broader uh, frame for how his style of GM is looking at these things.
1: Correct. Yeah. So he writes, I always struggled and was sometimes angered when a scout coach or both gave an opinion on a player that hurt the cause of consensus. Now, I I truly believe this describes almost every GM in the league, right? Like NFL GMs, they make mouth noises about aggregating opinions in in their building, right? Especially like maybe Les Sneed, for instance, you know, someone who is the subject of a media think piece, right? And they'll brag about their superior information. But in the end, they undo whatever that edge is, whatever that informational edge is and what it gives them by being completely unable. And I think it's an emotional thing. They're emotionally unable to deal with someone who doesn't fall in line with them. And that dissenter, interestingly, is the exact voice you need to be waiting in your analysis to get sharper, right? And and the evidence that this is true is, is out there. There's like public mocks, like what Arif Hassan, Arif Hassan does over used to be at the Athletic. Now he's on his own over at uh, the Draft Network or somewhere like that. I can't remember where yeah, he is now. Yeah, I believe now. so. And uh, uh, but pro football uh, network, pro football, football network. network. That's it. Yeah. That's it. But he's been doing this uh, this consensus big board for years, and people have you know done a lot of analysis based on it. And the public is about as good at slotting players according to talent as the NFL. And if teams were properly leveraging their superior information, they'd be better than these outsiders, right? But the power, the real power of that aggregation of these diverse opinions, it closes the gap, and it eliminates that edge. So
0: you can have a situation on this, on that, on that point, because I think that's a really interesting point—the consensus thing. Unless you're still going on about no, no, consensus. no,
1: that's it. That, that, that's my first point. So good. Okay,
0: so the, with consensus thing, I think that's really interesting because I've heard a few times since then, and I believe when he was talking about consensus here, he was referring, or he had another piece that was referring specifically to the Anthony Richardson pick by the Colts because his thought was with Richardson's profile um, only having a year as a starter a pretty low completion percentage there were some I don't know warts if you want to say that I know even there was a post draft piece written by uh, Stephen Holder over at ESPN who covers the Colts and it mentioned that Ed Dodds who is like the second in command to Chris Ballard, who's been shortlisted for GM jobs um, going forward. He was he had something to the quote to the effect of like, what are we doing here? Even looking at Richardson, just having a periphery, you know, a superficial glance at, at like his type of profile. So I was surprised because I've read a few different places where they talk about consensus for this type of pick, this type of big quarterback early pick. You need to have the owner on board. You need to have the GM on board and you want to have consensus everywhere. And I think it makes sense from a like avoiding regret sort of perspective. And that's my big thing in the NFL. These guys are all trying to avoid regretting something because if you don't have anyone on the building who can definitively say I was against this, then when it goes wrong, if you were all for it, you're all going down in the ship together, that type of, of situation. But for me, like, I don't wait, think you wait, actually wait. need consensus on these but that's not
1: That's not avoiding regret. That's socializing failure
0: socializing failure well you know you know what i mean like avoiding conflict in the future based upon this sort of thing but for me like i'm all about what makes the best pick and the best put pick can have consensus absent right like do you want a bunch of opinions that are in one direction but maybe of different lukewarm degrees or if there are strong opinions in either direction, and then you still make the pick, sometimes that could end up in a range of outcomes type of aspect as being the best pick. So I guess I'm maybe anti this idea that consensus even should be the goal in this circumstance, because do we know it actually leads to the best decisions?
1: Right. I mean, weighted consensus is is the answer. And that's, that's what a model does. So um, now a model isn't the end of the story. Um, and the inputs are human inputs, it, the best ones that I think. Um, But but at the end of the day, uh, you know, because you can't just do it with production, you need to use these scouting grades. And then once you've tiered these guys, right, then you're really in this nebulous world of we don't know. And then the best GMs will be the ones that are humble about not knowing. Um, And then they will treat these picks as bets and not as something that's attached to their ego. And I'll get into that some more with this uh, article. So this is actually dovetails right into what Mueller talks about or Mueller talks about being an evaluator. He says. And I think this pinpoints the reason why this current class of analytical GMs will never get better at this, really. He says, I never wanted to side with the loudest or highest ranking voice in the room. Fortunately, I'm an experienced evaluator myself and have high confidence for many years of doing it. So I had my own thoughts to fall back on. And he adds in this parenthetical here, which will drive some people crazy, but I, I, I don't want to focus on the wrong thing. He says, some GMs who are salary capped experts and not evaluators could possibly side with the best salesperson in the room, not him though. So almost every GM in their heart of hearts, right? They view themselves as the top scout, I mean, That that's why they go to pro days. I mean, that, that's why they go to the senior bowl and patrol the sidelines like some feudal Lord, you know, surveying their vassals or whatever. So I think that this is absolutely pinpoints the problem. And I think we can, we can look at what happens in the league. And, and a great example is what happened in, with the Lions and GM Brad Holmes. So there's this article that was written about his analysis of Jameer Gibbs and why they came to take him with the 12th overall pick. And I'll quote from this article. It says, in Gibbs, the Lions had another guy that Holmes had long eyed. The GM live scouted him at Alabama, Texas in September. When he arrived there to evaluate Bryce Young, Bijan Robinson and Anderson, he got a tip. Watch the transfer back from Georgia Tech. He was impressed when he was on the field level, field level, this is important, with how Gibbs was built and how he moved. In time, he'd come to look at Gibbs as more of a weapon than a back, one who'd fit in his running back room as presently constituted better than Robinson would. So let, let's put aside the whole, let's let's put aside positional value. I don't know how I can. It seems insane. We're going to put that aside for a second. But back to consensus. Here's Holmes, who went on the field one time for one game, one where I've heard from some scouts who say that that was one of like Robinson's worst games. So for one game, he was on the field field level, saw how this guy moved and was able to buck all consensus about who the best back in the draft was. Okay. That is what being a top scout is. It's how they define themselves. They don't define themselves as managers or creators or something larger in organization. They're scouts.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because you could say that that comment about A former salary cap expert um i mean it's not directed obviously because everyone is really heaping praise upon someone like howie roseman but you know howie roseman i think he spent some time in some of the scouting areas but obviously that wasn't his traditional purview there so i guess my question would be and i think this is part of the problem this is part of the issue when in this Ballard piece and i've seen it a billion times before where they say um And it came also in Carolina for Fritterer, they're talking about that the top decision maker doesn't want to reveal his opinions or, uh, you know, his explicit opinions on who he believes is the top pick. And, you know, magically, everyone has a consensus opinion that falls exactly in line with what that happened to be when it's finally revealed. So, my question is the model now, which is Super Scout becomes gm you know whoever's the best scout becomes gm is there any way to avoid that is it because if you have super scout becomes gm then if you're a scout below the super scout and you have a differing opinion than the super scout doesn't that put you in a position of essentially being wrong in in some sort of way shape or form and you're not going to want to air that opinion or have that opinion um in the current model as it's stated is there any way to avoid that
1: no, not in the current model. And and because it truly makes them angry, because it is about how they define themselves. They're the top scout. Their opinion, if it's disagreed with by enough people below them, it becomes offensive to them. And there's no way to hide that. Um, because again, it's definitional. It's why they got the job. I am top scout and you are telling me I'm wrong. Who the fuck are you? So of course, that's going to trickle down emotionally, emotively, the way that you lead These people, it's going to make its way into their analysis and the way they present their information, the way that they bang or not bang the table for certain players, the way they suck up to their boss. So, I think one of the interesting things is how do we get this to change? I don't think we do. I think that someone who's actually, uh, so let me, I'll give an example and then I'll, and then I'll talk about. So, like, people lionize Steve Jobs, right? And I think it's mostly horse shit. I think he was a sociopath, but. He did say something that I think was pretty <laughs> He had a good aesthetic
0: though. He had an aesthetic thing going on.
1: Yeah, but he also thought about things deeply. And and this is one of the examples of it. And he says, some journalists asked him what his favorite product was, right? He's like, of all the ones you've helped bring into the world, and he's like, Apple, not iTunes, not iPod, not iPhone. He was most interested in created in creating an organization. He saw that as his life's work. And the closest thing we've had to that kind of jobsy and obsession with every aspect of how a team is built is Bill Walsh. And he was, of course, also wildly successful. But there are no Bill Walsh's in the league right now. There are only Super Scouts.
0: But what about Bill Belichick? Does he qualify as a Walshian figure?
1: I mean, I think, I think we've seen more and more, and I've had this take before I wrote an article on 538 about it, that while he is a great coach, there's no doubt about that. I don't think he was on the level of Walsh. Walsh created trees. He had coaching trees. He had a system. Any any anytime someone leaves one Patriot way, they fall apart. Spectacularly. There's nothing there. There's no there there. In fact, I would argue that I would argue Bill Belichick is very, very good at his job, but that he benefited more than anyone wants to admit from having Tom Brady um and 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 that's not an original take but i just i i think we need to underline it um the real success that you find in nfl the lasting success that the 49ers had was that they had an incredibly obsessively detailed system under bill Walsh he wrote a damn book about how detailed you i mean he, he was micromanaging his secretary like it, it's wild
0: yeah, so he, he doesn't exactly seem like a dude that would be a lot of fun to work with, though. <laughs> Either, I have no, to say. no, I, no. Again, walk so- in the park. Dealing with that
1: sociopath. Like I, I'm not yeah. saying this is the model for how to do things, but I am saying, well, I am saying it's the model. But I'm not saying that they're they're the type of person that comes along with being that type of organization freak and detail oriented person and and desire to own every aspect of the enterprise. I think that you you almost necessarily select for sociopaths but i don't think it has to be that way how does that I,
0: I said one thing i'll say in that regard is that and this is like i think that has to come though from a coach, this is why I mentioned Belichick, like a coach kind of taking over the organization as opposed to a GM taking over the over the organization. I mean, the coach is really more of the authority figure in like 99% of the time. I mean, another example would probably be like uh, Bill Parcells or someone like that. Really just comes in, like no one could come in like and have that sort of authority, that sort of uh, free reign to go ahead and remake an organization in the way that that he wanted to. Um, would you agree with that? That a coach kind of has to be the person in that regard.
1: I guess. I mean, if you look at Bill Walsh's history, it wasn't like he had some kind of moral authority, like like the tuna, like Bill Belichick. I mean he he was kind of passed over. He was like a third choice for the Niners, if I recall correctly, out of Stanford. It wasn't. It wasn't like he came in with some amazing. And the other thing is that Paul Brown didn't even vouch for him at certain points in his career. Like he really felt like he was done dirty. And so when he came in, it was all, it was, it was, it was, he felt like he needed to overdo everything. He over prepare. He, he felt like that he didn't belong. And so he was just always trying to keep up and get, stay ahead. And and I think that, I think that that is a, an outsider's perspective more than more than this insider's perspective. You seem to be describing, but but I, uh, but I do agree that it would probably be easier for someone like Tuna if he came in with
0: these ideas to implement them. Yeah, yeah. Well, one more thing on the Super Scout thing is that it just seems like a bad use of time for the GM to be scouting. Really concerned with scouting as opposed to doing. Everything possible to try to figure out how to use all the information at his, I guess, or her someday disposal to figure out how to make the best decision, because ultimately that's what they're responsible for. Right. Like they have other people who can do the scouting. No one can actually make the decision other than the GM. Um, But one other thing that I'll mention, and this maybe goes back to a larger theme of whether or not people can do things correctly How much do we need to give passes to – of course, you're you're not in the pass-giving business, but maybe I am a little bit more than you. How much do we need to give passes to GMs knowing that they have a short-term thinking, a lot of the times irrational, um, reactive ownership in a lot of different circumstances? And they have to – really, their only means of staying in the job that they have is satisfying that beast – the ownership beast, otherwise they don't really have any means of some sort of objective standard for why they should stay in the job other than the fact that the ownership wants them to be there.
1: How is that different from any other GM?
0: No, it's not different from any other job. I'm just saying GMs generally. How do we how do we think about it? I, I, I about guess that, what I'm
1: saying is you, you, took, you took the fucking job. You're the GM now. You yes. took the job. You took the job. So you get the blame and you get the credit. And so much of what we see happen in these uh, organizations, in these buildings is the privatization of wins and the socialization of losses. And that is literally what the sharp ones, right? The, the, I call them, I, I, I always I derisively call the Cleveland, uh, the Cleveland consultants. Like, you know, they, they, they know exactly how, where the line is and how far you can push things until you actually have to take ownership of something that might come back and bite your career. And they will not push that line. And I think it's cowardly. And so I think I think Mueller, Mueller he has a, a really insightful kind of take on this. We have to he just says, pick one.
0: We got to just pick one on this. <laughs> so, we don't go, so we don't say it. Let's just go with Mueller. Go ahead.
1: Mueller. Yeah. Okay. So he says, I, for one, could not have chosen the direction the Colts went. Right. I'm not saying they're wrong. Just couldn't have done it. It's one thing to have a diverse set of opinions. But then he gets down to why that is. And he says, I had knots in my stomach for the powers that be in India and 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 that's because without consensus you can't socialize failure right it's on you and the texans are a good example of this they're one example Nick area was frog marched into taking a qb that there was no consensus on and to compensate they traded a freaking gaggle of picks to move up to take an edge guy that he because he's the top scout that's the guy he wanted right and and i think you see it in minnesota i think you see their team that just good enough to lose with Kirk cousins that the GM continues to avoid making bold decisions, drafts, potential replacement, um, analytic types. Like you keep making ridiculous excuses for it. Hey, he's the GM. He's (laughs) the GM because they want to believe he represents us somehow. And he doesn't, he's only interested in maximizing the length of his tenure as GM, not maximizing the chances of the Vikings winning the Super Bowl. You get no point. That's interesting. You You get zero points.
0: I'm actually writing up a post here uh, currently on like the principal agent problem, which is what they call it um, when you have... Normally, it's in the context of a business, like a CEO trying to maximize their own uh worth vis-a-vis the ownership of this group. Now, I do think it's a little bit different than the NFL and I would maybe substitute the principal in the NFL instead of being the ownership because I do think the ownership gets really caught up in like the day-to-day as being more like the fans who are really the somewhat so- somewhat also like long-term asset holders like their fandom is really attached to the team stakeholders
1: at least. Stakeholders,
0: right. So for, for a very long period of time. And yeah, I, I do think Minnesota. It was interesting. I was on a uh, podcast with Matthew Collier, who is the um who is a he does Purple Insider. He has a substack. He's a substack brother in arms. Um, He's got a new for, book
1: out by the way. Fantastic yeah, new book, book on Fantastic. on
0: PFF. I uh, haven't read it yet, but I, I will. And he was talking about like what the Vikings should do and. It's one of those things where last season you could say, okay, I kind of get it. Like, you stick with Kirk for a year, and then you figure it out, and then this, that. But now we're at this season, and man, it's hard. Like, they are really in a bad spot. Like, way see, worse we came than came out
1: last before season. last season and badmouthed him.
0: Like, I mean, I don't know. It was Mahomes a shocking decision.
1: So, it was know. a shocking decision because there was no winning for him there. It was almost like he just wanted to signal to the nerds that he gets it, but he doesn't get it because he's not doing it.
0: But like every year that passes, I think for a GM, it becomes more and more of this principal agent problem. I think this is also part of what we saw in uh, two relatively new young GMs in Detroit and in Atlanta is that they're both entering their third season. So to start over at quarterback, to not do what will maximize 2023 wins, um, when Detroit is the leader, at least odds wise, to win the division, Atlanta is a pretty close second to the Saints to win a wide open division. I think it becomes a really real a real big problem there if you bring in a new GM and you do not allow them just to blow things up in year one, because then the, the the number of GMs and coaches who survive three years of not making the playoffs or not having a winning record is almost nil.
1: I mean, it's just, it's a very strange kind of um, contortion. Logically, you have to get, you have to put yourself in a pretzel to say, now that we're at year three and we made all these bad decisions, we're really stuck. Like, yeah, well, you made bad decisions that got you there. You should have immediately started making these decisions that gave you more outs. That's the entire point here. But you start stacking bad decisions on bad decisions, and then you say, "Oh well, now I'm stuck, guys. You have to see, I, all my all my paths have been closed off."
0: Okay, you, know? you, well, you got another uh, dose of uh, negativity in, in the quotes over there. I do.
1: So well, this actually, this is just kind of my summation of the whole thing. I think, okay, I think if you think about NFL GMs, it's this unholy brew of ego, fear and failure and an overconfidence in a, in what's an extremely noisy evaluation process. And that defines what it is to be a modern GM and all those forces make them cowardly because in their hearts, they know that their advancement was mostly due to luck. And when you know, you probably can't do the same magic trick twice without the audience figuring it out. You do anything you can to avoid situations where your reputation's on the line, and that's yeah. what we see over and over again.
0: Yeah, I mean, and there's there are very few second acts for GMs who are not don't have something to pin their success on the first time. I mean, there's very few second acts, period, for for GMs, less so than even for coaches. Um, so, yeah, if you've ascended to that spot and that's really no place else to go other than BGM, GM to lose that job, that um, kind of relegates you to always being. A second tier sort of person, who's you know, it's, it's not great reputationally, right? When you have um, these guys who were once GM and then they go to work someplace else, it's almost like, yeah, it's almost like a joke in a way for certain guys, like Grigson or someone used to be the GM of the Colts, is now is he in Minnesota? I don't remember where he's been. He's bounced around a couple different places. He's in Cleveland, and then he's someplace else uh John Dorsey who's now although who's now behind you know Brad Holmes it's kind of like I don't know if anyone really sees these guys as being positive because by their very nature that you have to fail on your way out there so trying to avoid that is a very powerful disincentive to maybe do the right thing in in the in the long term
1: but if you if you don't let your ass clinch up and you actually make these bets right that have great payoff if they hit and you realize that luck is not on your side or, or could be on your side or not. It really doesn't depend. But luck is the first order term here that you need to get lucky first. So you might as well make these bets that if they pay off, they do set you up to actually have a longer career, right? Because the payoff's so high. It's this, it's instead you look at the negative side, right? And you look at trying to socialize away failure and you look at trying to mitigate instead of trying to be bold. And it just never works. I mean, you, At the end, you have to get seriously lucky. You have to luck box into a Tom Brady, right? Look at what happened to Ballard. He thought he was going into a great situation with Andrew Luck. Nope. Look at what happened to Cesario. He thought he was going into probably a decent situation with Watson. Nope. And so, like, there's so much you can't control. So why don't you do the sharp thing, the smart thing, that everyone knows is smart, right, when the things you can control?
0: Okay. How about this? For some evidence that things may be improving on the margins when we talk about some of this stuff. And I'm going to go to positional value here. And this could be more of a reflection of this particular draft class. But if you look at, let's just take the first round of the NFL draft that just happened. We, of course, you know, big focus on the B. John Robinson pick at number eight, uh, the Jameer Gibbs pick at number 12, The Lions again, taking off-ball linebacker Jack Campbell at number 18. Maybe some reaches that had happened in there. But overall, outside of those three picks... And maybe if you want to throw in tight end Dalton Kincaid, depending upon how you view tight ends in the positional value equation, I'm not sure if tight ends are like a bad positional value or they just have been bad in the first round. They're just difficult hey to rank order. Everybody, this was a free um, Outside of that, it wasn't that bad. And in fact, when I tried a to calculate historical norms, like the positional subject. value and gained or lost by teams, most teams were in the subscription because at this they point. had. Let me know either that shoot me an email at we're taking earlier, I guess. An pts volume in the round, at gmail the, dot gmail.com the value Send positions. me a note or leave a um, comment. Do we, on we give any credit for that? maybe Twitter at it's Kevin moving Cole, a little bit less underscore. outside of these Let me know very the loud examples. You know, financial that we hardship at this point, I will give early. you no questions asked. I mean, I would give them more credit if they weren't letting you can get these premium podcasts and all of my other premium content. Thank you so much for listening. And I think once again, we're falling
1: into the trap of saying teams of. Have-